This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. In years gone by, it was the occasional boundary-pushing book, video, song or fringe foreign flick picked for a film festival which bothered our senses and created the odd headline or two. But these days, the vast bulk of their work is weighing up extreme stuff published online against our rights to freedom of expression. Now That's part of the reason the government's reviewing the regulation of media content to, in its words, better protect us from harm. This week we ask the outgoing chief censor, do our news media need to worry about that? And could it open up another front in the free speech culture wars? But first, we look at the new online news outlet that launched this week, the first of its kind in this country. It's hosting a host of blokes who have quit mainstream talk radio in recent years for various reasons, and they're urging listeners to join the resistance. But resistance to what exactly? Those who tuned in early to the live stream of the brand new streaming platform, The Platform, last Monday before 7, heard Tom Petty there wailing about waiting being the hardest part before the platform got underway. Though by that time, it was Elvis Presley drowning out the star turn of The Platform, founder Sean Plunkett. And it was only when they turned the king down a bit that those wanting to hear what the platform's main man was actually saying got a little more satisfaction. Indifferent. A place where all people are welcome to take part and you won't be judged for your age, your gender or your income or your ethnicity or your political leaning or who you like sleeping with. We're a platform for tolerance and openness and truth. We aren't taking your tax dollar filtered through the government's spin machine to fund our business. And we are never, and I mean never, going to bow to cancel culture mobs or social media trolls. Now, not taking public money was a huge theme, even an obsession for this digital media service, broadcasting daily online for 12 hours from studios in Wellington and central Otago. And it also has an app and a website that's been up and running for a while now, carrying opinion pieces by the hosts and guest writers. In the run-up to going live this week, Sean Plunkett wouldn't say where the platform's funding was coming from, though Business Desk revealed earlier this month that the Wright family from Tauranga, headed by Rich Listers Wayne and Chloe Wright, had taken a majority stake through its family trust. Now, This message claiming that other media are compromised by government handouts airs repeatedly in the platform's live output. Who can you trust in this rapidly changing world? Most Kiwi media are overseas owned. Most are taking government money that comes with strings attached. If they don't like what you say, you're cancelled. But now, there is a place where you can resist, get and share views that are honest and real. It's talk radio, it's honest opinions, it's free media. Join the resistance. Throughout the day, the platform's listeners regularly hear also stirring sound bites from Winston Churchill, John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King in between all the talking, and then this frequent message from the founder. If anything you've heard or read on the platform has offended, disturbed or upset you, or if you believe we've breached any code of broadcasting standards, tough. You can ring our talk line on 0800 Debate and have a yarn about what's upset you, though. <laughs> 
Don't melt like a snowflake, Sean Plunkett told listeners on day one. Call in, sound off and get debate going, but within limits. There are some rules, folks. Let's try and play the ball, not the person. Let's look for common ground rather than pick an argument. And when we have to, let's agree to disagree. But on that day, the callers weren't really debating the hosts, just backing them up and telling them that they couldn't agree more. The platform also runs hourly news bulletins and regular headlines, just like actual talk radio, and Sean Plunkett had what he called an exclusive up his sleeve on day one, a government policy to encourage uptake of EVs, which he reckoned would be in the budget next week. Now, Sean Plunkett told listeners this was crazy and virtue signalling and an unjustifiable subsidy, which could also put people into debt. It kind of looks good on paper, doesn't it? And it'll make, I guess, you know... The hippies and the mung bean munchers feel good about saving the planet. Not playing the person there doesn't apply to environmentalists, it seems, who Sean Plunkett was happy to stereotype like that. But the caller Matt wasn't keen on that EV idea either for a different reason. If you go and look up in, uh, in Paris, I think, on the outskirts of Paris, there's paddocks with about 10,000 of EVs, little wee smart cars just sitting there, dead, they don't know what to do with them. So... I think that tells, tells, tells the story of EVs and what's really going on with them, and yeah. they're a bit of a false narrative as far as, I, as far as I'm aware. But it was actually what Matt was saying there that was the false narrative. He'd seen photos of a so-called graveyard of electric vehicles in France that have been widely shared on Facebook lately by people claiming that these were EVs discarded once their batteries had died. But actually those cars were part of the mothballed former fleet of a car-sharing service in France, which went bust back in 2018. Now, the first public figure of political note on the platform was the National Party's police spokesperson, Mark Mitchell, on Monday. I was slightly confused, Mark. Did we have you scheduled as a guest on the programme, or are you just shamelessly trying to connect with the voters? <laughs> no, 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 look, I've, you, you did have me um, scheduled. You, John Pagani contacted me last night to come on the show, and I said, of course I'll do that for sure, no problem at all. All right. The next big name on the line after that on Monday was Peter Williams, who, like Sean Plunkett, quit MediaWorks talk station Magic Talk last year. Back then, Peter Williams was criticised for airing COVID vaccine misinformation and for endorsing an anti-vax group, among other things. And he told Sean Plunkett that working for Magic Talk had sucked the life out of him, but now he was living the good life on 10 acres near Cromwell. And although he shared Sean Plunkett's intense objection to government funding of private media, Peter Williams didn't seem too keen when Sean Plunkett asked him to put in a few shifts in the platform's new central attack. Studio. You can pull a shift for us? Well, I'm a bit out of practice, to be fair. Look, uh, I don't think that would worry anyone, to be honest. Now, Peter Williams was also recently appointed to the board of the New Zealand Taxpayers Union Lobby Group, whose talking points and people also got a fair bit of airtime when the platform kicked off. On day one, for example, spokesperson Louis Holbrook told Sean Plunkett the lack of mainstream media coverage of its own opinion poll which had picked up public disapproval of public money for the media, was in itself proof of the conflict of interest he claimed was a reason the public disapproved of it all in the first place. In the afternoons, the tone changes a little. Leanne Malcolm hosts a less political show, Southbeat, playing tunes and chatting with people like veteran muso Jordan Luck. Try and keep a balance of, of uh, not being too happy. <laughs> of, of not being too happy. 
Yeah. (laughs) And later in the afternoons, there's three hours of live sports chat with Martin Devlin, yet another from the old Radio Live Network and News Talk ZB, who also left his post last year on the radio amid controversy over his conduct on and off the air. Now, the centrepiece of his first outing on the platform was a long interview with Team New Zealand's much-criticised captain, Grant Dalton. One person's up front getting getting hammered, and, and but there's no sort of alternative. Someone's got to front it. Someone's got to front the bad news. Any sports journos listening in would have got a line or two for a story, you'd think, though it seems none did. Grant Dalton was also unrepentant about taking taxpayers' money down the years, though this time the taxpayers' union weren't called upon by the platform to follow up. On Tuesday, taxing Auckland motorists with congestion charges made news right across the media, a revealing sign of the lack of independent thought among our news media, Sean Plunkett told platform listeners that morning, though that didn't put him off either, asking anti-poverty advocate Sue Bradford what she thought at length that same day, as well as asking listeners, what would you do to climate activists if you caught them letting down the tyres on your ute? Now this was talkback that could have got out of hand, but this time it was Sean's caller who calmed the farm. I'm not into any of that. Um, hey, that's a good message, I'll, mate. That's a good message. What is... Yeah. All right. And, look, I, I, I like to say you hauled me back from the brink of inciting violence against individuals. <laughs> and you're quite right. I guess if, if anyone does come across these people, the best thing would be, in this day and age, you whip out your cell phone, don't you, and the camera. Now, the platform's hosts have told their listeners that they can take conversations much further than the radio because they've got no advertisers to worry about at the moment and they're not afraid of any backlash or cancel culture. But so far, most of the conversations are much the same as you'd expect on traditional talk radio, where all these veterans have worked until now. One possible exception, though, was the story of CEO Simon Henry, who hit the headlines last week for calling my food bag founder Nadia Lim Eurasian fluff and accusing the company of using her and her cleavage to attract investment in a company that she and other founders are now moving away from. Sean Plunkett condemned the outraged media commentary of Henry's conduct. He said it was a diversion that had failed the public. It was misogynistic and maybe racist. Funny thing was, of course, Nadia Lim says she wasn't offended. She chose to be offended in all the interviews I've seen on the potential that it might offend someone else. Now, worrying about being offended, in my mind, is a bit snowflakey anyway, but choosing to be offended on other people's behalf is even worse. That's real virtue signalling. And what she didn't address was the fact that she'd walked away with $14 million or more from the float of her company. This was an opinion Sean Plunkett had already written up for the platform's website, and later that same morning it was echoed by host Annie O'Brien. I feel like there is a lot of reason that people might be upset with with Lim and and others. Um, What do you think? Do you think that this is all a bit of a storm in a a teacup? We should stop talking about it because no one really cares who's been called fluff. And the people who called in on that topic all seem to be in full agreement that Nadia Lim was the problem, not Simon Henry. I think Nadia should just stick a nose in there like I did, stick a chest out, show a cleavage. Good on you, Liz. Thank you very much indeed. All right, who are we going to go to next? For all the promises of unfiltered debate and a contest of opinions, unrestrained by cautious editors or advertisers or the government, those who joined the resistance seem to follow their opinion leaders rather than take them on. Now, it's early days yet, but this week I asked Sean Plunkett if he was happy with that and what the platform can offer that the supposedly constrained private and publicly funded media outlets don't or can't. Our lines are open all the time. We don't wait till 9 o'clock when suddenly, supposedly, the talkback audience awakens from its slumber 
our attitude too, and you, you would have seen the surveys about public opinion about the impartiality or the bias inherent in mainstream media. There is no denying that many New Zealanders feel that their mainstream media, because it is taking money from the government, that their views are not listened to. We have outfits like stuff saying we will decide who gets platformed and we will decide who gets deplatformed. We have the Herald saying it will never publish anything by Michael uh, Bassett again, a former senior cabinet minister, a highly qualified historian. We will talk and entertain points of view that might not be in the mainstream media culturally accessible or, or available. Even bad ideas should be aired and discussed in an open democracy. There are certainly, you know, issues that are your particular preoccupations and those of your hosts, right? For example, so just to, I don't mean to pick on it, but Annie O'Brien, I know she's just no. filling in because she's, yep. a, but straight as she's on air, she's a member of Stand Up for Women, Free Speech Advocate. Yep. You know, so straight away, you know, she's into those issues. You yourself, as you've mentioned, media funding. Taxpayers' Union poll, Curia polls. So we've heard about all that mm. stuff within the first couple of days. You even had, for example, mm. on Friday, the, the Burr case, this uh, extraordinary jury decision. Yep. David Farah yep. on that. Uh, your pollster, the one you use. Isn't this some of the preoccupations for you? And uh, it is people in a certain circle who are getting a platform on your People in a certain circle who have been absolutely deplatformed by mainstream media which has led to a listening, a lessening in New Zealand society of diversity and open discussion. Well, we, we hear you know, taxpayers' union political polls talked about throughout the media. David Farah's on a lot. Yeah, you can turn on a radio and you hear him a lot. didn't get any coverage in any mainstream media. Well, this program did, but yes, I know. I, uh, I, I, I know okay. that. But let, are you mainstream, Colin, or are you a little niche <laughs> of liberal outrage? That would be for other people to judge, I would say. But let's... You make a huge deal at the platform. You can't listen for very long before you hear either a recorded message or one of the hosts make this point about the media being compromised, strings attached. You mentioned the Public Interest Journalism Fund a lot, which is $55 million from the current government over three to four years. But look, Mm. you know this. There's nothing new about public money going into private media companies. There's a lot new, Colin, about public money that you're only going to get if you agree to literally run your news business in accordance with the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, Colin. But that relates to the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which is $55 million over over three years. The the current... And then you don't get any New Zealand on-air funding unless you are politically aligned with the cultural commissars who sit there and dole that money out. Well, that may relate to decisions made to that particular fund, but in general, this, this fund takes government money for the media to around about $300 million a year in total. Now, I wish this was debated more, what we all get for it, where it goes, who's accountable, whether it's well spent. But over 30 years, the whole contestable system of funding, television companies, you know, have have derived income from the stuff. It's been going on forever. Now, the the funding that people get from this... You know what? The degradation of the independence and lack of bias in New Zealand media has been going on forever then too. Well, has it? Why is anything different now? Because you want to make a political point about that public interest... I don't want to make any political point except that democracy requires freedom of speech and for citizens to be unafraid to say what they think and to discuss difficult issues and to agree to disagree without being cancelled or derided. What are the issues that just cannot 
cannot, will not be discussed by we mainstream media. We have to talk about, well, it's been called the co-governance issue. We have to have, and Matthew Tukaki I had on this morning, saying we have to have a mature debate in this country about where constitutionally the Treaty of Waitangi sits in, t- in relation to our governments. Are we a bicultural country? Are we a multicultural country? Do we give specific voting rights based on the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi to run group by its ethnicity or not? All these and things are talked about in the media, Sean. This talk is... about that. What are the headlines that mainstream media have been running about that? That is the name-calling that is going on between, uh, what do we have, Kelvin Davis calling everyone in the opposition, you know, the granddaughters uh, or grandson of colonialists, um, people scream racist, um, and mainstream media helps people scream racist whenever those difficult issues are raised. Mm. Well, yeah, sounds like people exercising a bit of their free speech, and that stuff's been reported in the media. So, yeah, too, has. Not when the media takes sides, Colin. Not when there is groupthink. Dr. Bryce Edwards, one of your contributors uh, on, or guest writers, I guess, on, on the platform, he does this daily digest of stuff reported in the media yeah. that journalists um, use quite a lot. And you can see co governance, hapua pua, all these things that you're saying are almost no go areas that the media's made their mind yeah. up on or aren't being freely debated. You know, there's article after article after article, as yeah, well as these sideline debates that you're talking about. In context, there is no mass platform. That and that's why I've got Bryce on. Bryce has always been a good writer, but you know what's happened to Bryce Edwards because he has deviated from the politically accepted narrative of the left and those in power on the left. He is being frozen out, given the cold shoulder by the Labour establishment. He has almost been forced not by the media, um, though, Sean. He's he's a very visible, he's a very visible pundit. I don't mind that, but he has experienced the very cultural cringe and cultural ex- exclusion, which seems to me to have become the norm in New Zealand media. But the point the is, he's not censored. He's, he's to not... the guy in Ekarahuna, to the, the, the woman housewife in Winton, <laughs> to people who aren't inside the power elite, aren't inside the Beltway in Wellington, right? Y- yes. They're the people who, who, who are feeling, and you can see this in survey results, you can see public comments. They feel like their media has abandoned them in the interest of pursuing its own political and cultural agenda, which seems for the moment to be aligned with the government of the day. Well, why, why would you say that? Because there's plenty of commentary giving the government a hard time. I can't see that it's any different now in terms of mass media outlets, the likes of Staff or the Herald or local newspapers. Uh, there's still a range of comment and opinion, which is critical of government opposition. Nothing much is different now than it was, say, 10 years ago. I well, we are living, Colin, I hate to say, in an alternate universe. Okay. You did a, uh, had a chat with the New Zealand Initiative recently, which was on a podcast of theirs I happened to catch, where you talked about why you wanted to set up the platform. And one of the reasons you said was, you know, you became aware as you got older and more experienced, you were working in places where people with less experience were uh, making decisions and perhaps giving you orders you didn't entirely like. Yeah, I mean, I've become a grumpy old curmudgeon. But I mean, the point is, you know, you were feeling frustrated. And I wonder, is it really no. that and not really this deep-seated feeling that the media is failing or cutting out certain people? Yep, either? Yeah, that, that's definitely a feeling that the media needs a correction. And I don't want to dominate the New Zealand media market. But I hope if we do things and connect with our audience and real New Zealanders Maybe some major media outlets might take a look at themselves 
and say, oh, we've kind of lost the people. Maybe we're too inside our own echo, echo chamber and we need to reach out and change the way we do things. That would be the change I would literally like, want to achieve in the world. Well, on the platform, you say, you know, your phone number is 0800 debate. Uh, you say you want people to call in, you challenge them to, to call in and create debate. Yeah. But what I do here is pretty much a lot of people who are just ringing in to say they couldn't agree more. Let's and take... I also love people disagreeing with me. And the greatest thing that can happen in any conversation is someone changes your mind because it means you might have learned something. If we take one example, so the Simon Henry story, the Nadia Lim yeah. controversy. So you published your own opinion on the site, said, look, the real issue is the company's performance and, you know, celebrity yeah. roles in, in business and it, it being a poor investment for people who, who invested in it. The Simon Henry thing, his conduct, whole separate issue. And, I, you know, you said that yeah. on the air. After that, this is all woke, uh, snowflakery, people being upset for the sake of it. After you made all your points, Annie O'Brien came and said the same thing. What do you think, everyone? Do you think it's all people shouldn't be upset for the sake of it and who cares about a Eurasian fluff comment? And the callers all ring in and say, yeah, quite agree. So d- don't you worry that they're all following your lead. I, I don't hear a lot of debate. I hear a lot of um, perhaps callers that share your well, preoccupations. Then what's that you're happen, if you want to change that the woke and the people who don't agree with me. Here's the challenges. If this is going to work, people who are listening to this interview on Sunday morning on national radio and tune in for your take of the world, they've got to ring in. They've got to listen to the platform as well. And then as our audience grows and we get more diversity, the quality of the debate improves. And on that story, uh, you know, on your website comment, you said, uh, you know, I imagine that the Me Too phone tree was ringing off the hook. People probably fainted about uh, the Henry the insult in the RNZ news newsroom. I'm yeah, yeah. you like the column. But, and you've also had a knock, um, you know, you said about the Burr case uh, on Friday, the result would have you know, press gallery journalists all in us. But no, you criticise people for virtue signalling, aren't you? Colin. And, you know, what's wrong with satire and hyperbole? It's a perfectly acceptable journalistic device. Oh, sure. But aren't you open to the accusation you're virtue signalling as well? Because you're trying to say, look, here I am. I'm oh, am not, I not emotionally I responding in the same way as these people. Signal. I have never thought about it before, which is why it's good to have a conversation with you. I'll right. give that some thought. That was Sean Plunkett, founder of the new digital media platform, The Platform, which this week launched its live radio-like live stream. And Sean Plunkett is the morning host on the service from 7 till 9. And there's plenty more on its app and its website, theplatform.kiwi. Almost 25 years ago, two Massey University media experts surveyed the state of our censorship rules in a book called In the Public Good? There were chapters about film, TV, music, literature and a relatively new area of concern, computer games. And there were classic case studies down the years like Lady Chatterley's Lover, Lolita, Last Tango in Paris and Mortal Kombat with a K. And only in the final chapter of their book did Chris Watson and Roy Shuker ponder digital technology in the future. And most of that was about alarm over adult content being beamed in on satellite TV. But the internet was already up and running by 1998 and offering up alarming and illegal stuff online. Here's TVNZ's news show Primetime back in 1995 reporting on a doomed political effort to control it back then. A computer and a phone line is all that's needed to access explicit pornography and terrorist how-to information. The law's not kept up with technology. Tonight, MP Trevor Rogers moved to change that. Pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar business and the use of technology and electronics is their forte. 
Now, back in 1998, Watson and Shuka said that media headlines about internet pornography had an air of moral panic about them. Young people back then, they said, didn't seem overly interested in it, judging by what they'd seen on TV One. On the Holmes show, boys and girls from a city college were firm in their assertion that they had only found material that Holmes wanted for his programme at his insistence. Well, Paul Holmes told me to. Sounds like an unusual excuse for getting caught for that, even 25 years ago. Anyway, Watson and Shuka said at the time an effort must be made to get through a complex maze of connections to find that stuff. It's not very easy to find, download or reproduce free of charge, they said. But that wasn't the case for long, and likewise content created by extremists or even terrorists. Platforms like Facebook and YouTube were up and running within just a few years, and live-streamed violence was possible long before the March 15th atrocity in Christchurch sickened this country a quarter of a century later. MP Trevor Rogers' private member's bill back in 1995 went nowhere at that time, and he only lasted another year as an MP. But the system of regulating our media content and censoring it has barely changed since then. And in recent years, referrals of online indecency and violence has come to dominate the censor's workload. Back in March 2019, the chief censor, David Shanks, hit the headlines by banning the video of the Christchurch Mosque massacre and the racist manifesto behind it. And in 2020, the law was urgently changed to make live-streaming objectionable content a specific criminal offence, and the law change also allowed the chief censor to classify a publication immediately to stop it spreading online. But the government dropped proposals to actually filter the internet by blocking public access to entire websites or specific objectionable material after hefty pushback from free speech advocates and some politicians. For example, the then leader of the opposition, Simon Bridges, warned Parliament that such powers could interfere with legitimate news gathering, like George Floyd-style eyewitness video or newsrooms revealing accounts of Oranga Tamariki's uplifts that year. Dare I say it, it's a cancel culture and it's not a path we should go down. I don't see this law as isolated. I think we see more of it coming. And the effect on society overall is quite insidious. Soon after that, Nationals media and broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee called this the start of the next national debate on free speech and censorship in New Zealand. And it wasn't, but one could be sparked by government plans to reform media regulation, including the power of the censors. Aside from the classification office, New Zealand has only one other statutory regulator, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which has jurisdiction over television and radio, and in recent years, the broadcaster's own online content. The New Zealand Media Council operates as a self-regulatory watchdog for news publishers, and the Advertising Standards Authority enforces the rules for ads in a similar way. And almost a decade after the Law Commission first called for a body with a consistent set of standards across all media, Last year, the Department of Internal Affairs proposed a new system to better protect New Zealanders from harmful content. But not only is that mission very different to upholding agreed media standards, harm also means very different things to different people, with different ideas about the limits of freedom of expression. Last year, the Office of the Chief Censor released a report showing New Zealanders were now more exposed to and more concerned about online misinformation and extremism than ever before. And the chief censor, David Shanks, told an Otago University conference on social media this. Look, actually, we can be better than this, and this is an opportunity to think broadly and deeply and listen to, listen to um, other voices about what good looks like in this space. And, and I, I go back to what I was saying, which is, you know, I think there's some very obvious moves that we can do here 
to make um, the current regulatory system and framework more coherent and work better and be fitter for purpose for a digital environment. Now, is that easy? No. Um, is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Um, are we going to be able to make a move and learn from it and, and, and move forward? Yes, absolutely. Well, that sounds reasonable, and the government's media content review documents do say our news media are a low risk of harm themselves. But plenty of people in the media are alarmed about the possibility of having a digital age regulator with the power of a censor to block online content, having power over them. David Shanks came to the end of his five-year term last week, saying that the government's content regulatory review now provides a real opportunity to address the rising tide of misogyny, hate speech, racism and misinformation across so much of the internet. So, should our news media expect or accept greater powers over their freedom to publish as a result? I don't believe they should be worried about that, but I can understand there being some uh, potential consternation and reservation about what what change will mean. Um, you know, freedom of the press and the the ability to to report without um, anxiety and concern that there might be some legal liability for production of some kind of unlawful material um, is an important consideration. Right across the world, you've got regulatory structures that reflect the world as it was. And it's important to keep some of those distinctions clear when we're working through whatever comes next. But I think you can do that. And I think we're seeing um, some thinking around exactly what that looks like for the internet and um, overseas initiatives and regulation. Yeah, what do other countries do? You know, the likes of, I don't know, to pick a couple, Australia or Ireland that we're often compared to. Do they have overarching regulators that have you know, censors office powers such as you have uh, and also regulate um, news media content broadcasting and, you know, the converged output that happens on the internet that they're all doing? I think one of the most interesting um, overseas comparators that I have seen is, is in Ireland, as you mentioned, where effectively they are looking to pull together some of their existing regulatory structures and frameworks into an integrated office, but still having um, within that office a broadcasting commissioner or a, or a content commissioner with separate kind of uh, areas of focus um, and jurisdiction. And I think that sort of model uh, makes some sense to me if you think about a sensible integrated approach that makes you know that that makes sense to people and is understandable and you're seeing this also with the EU initiative um, um, the digital services act where effectively they're saying look um, if you're acting if you're operating an online platform and distributing content and, and profiting from that in a way you are a broadcaster um, but we've got to accept that actually you don't have the sort of editorial control and oversight that a traditional broadcaster has. So we're going to apply some standards of transparency, um, some baseline standards of what you need to do to ensure that your users are kept safe and there's um, moderation of hate speech and the like. And we will have a regulator that has oversight of those standards. So it's a bit of a mix you know, we have decency laws, we have the Harmful Digital Communications Act, and the media doesn't fall foul of that, and we might have hate speech laws entirely separate soon. So all of those sorts of egregious 
gross breaches that are antisocial can be dealt with by other laws, why not just make news media exempt if we're going to review the way we do everything? The, the question I think that immediately comes up when you have that debate is who is classified as news media? By and large, um, I, I think New Zealand news media takes a responsible approach um, that they're professional, they're aware of the standards, they're, they're aware of tolerance and thresholds and, and make some very, very difficult and testing calls in, in real time and res- around um, informing the public, doing their job, reporting the news while not creating harm. And I think there's been kind of growing awareness and maturity around what that balance looks like, particularly in the aftermath of um, the March 15 attacks. What level of assurance do we have going forward that that is always going to be the case? Because, of course, we've got online uh, channels calling themselves uh, news channels and um, broadcasters. I would suggest have none of those levels of professionalism and balance, and they certainly ignore the sorts of uh, balance, fairness and accuracy uh, that come under broadcasting standards. But it really doesn't take much imagination or much looking around to to look at overseas examples and look at examples um, online where um, essentially the categories and demarcations start breaking down. And this is the internet, right? The process of convergence that we're, that we're battling with here. Well, you so, mentioned- so any system we put in place has got to has got to accommodate that um, that inevitable change. David, earlier you mentioned what I think is the key word here, which is harm, and it's mentioned in the government's regulatory review documents. Uh, they say, you know, harm can manifest as people, particularly tamariki and rangatahi, experiencing trauma or feeling unsafe, isolated or marginalised, and communities being disadvantaged or discriminated against, including facing active hostility. Um, Also public processes and institutions losing trust and confidence of society. Now, those are things that all could be the result of totally legitimate reporting in the public interest. I mean, the truth can do a bit of harm. So news media really will be worried about the effort to you know move away from just upholding media standards which is something media have a part in setting and, and abide by and this concept of harm really does cut across what they do doesn't it we cannot be designing a system that is designed to prevent any harm at all or any risk of harm in terms of in those feelings that that people will naturally experience when they're um, seeing reports of something dreadful happening. Um, I, I would argue that news media currently does walk that line, currently does make decisions about what images, what video, even you know what, what um, survivor or witness accounts, what level of detail uh, are, are captured and portrayed um, to, the, to the viewership or the readership. There are some things that just um, get to the point where you are not just reporting the news, you're inflicting harm or vicarious trauma upon um, your viewers and readers. And and I think... But if if avoiding harm becomes the primary thing and not just abiding by standards, you you know, if you say reporting on a community like, uh, say, in a religious context, Gloria Vale, or even recent reports we've had about... um, Arise Church and so on, and the conduct of its leaders and treatment of interns there, even ones that cut across sort of ethnic lines, like recent reports that have annoyed people about arranged marriages 
within migrant communities and so on. If, if there's a regulator that has harm and avoidance of harm as its primary goal, then your yeah, media will be extremely wary of, of any rules that elevate that above the maintenance of standards and the public interest. Um, yes, broadcasters are not expected to and will not um, expose their viewers to absolutely graphic and horrendous um, detail uh, that will that will inflict harm on the viewership and beyond that um, it should be recognized that there is an obligation and expectation that um, the viewership or readers will you know will, will understandably and normally and naturally experience some some degree of um, emotion and, and arguably in some cases some degree of harm but I think the only way you you unravel that not is is really in the process of working through um, the rules and principles to be put in place is to actually talk through exactly these scenarios and understand where there will be freedom and where there will be expectations of a balance. And just to finish, I'll go back to that book published in 1998 about censorship in New Zealand, the two authors uh, so here, look, the internet appears to be creating something that's as close to the global village concept as, as any medium has ever uh, been able to do. And they say it should be appreciated. We're only seeing the beginning of a communication medium that will soon offer full-size moving images with stereo sound. And it's probable that international computer links will supplant TV as the principal purveyor of audiovisual imagery. So, yep, that happened. And they say the problems of control of this seem to be insurmountable. And the solution is uh, educated citizens capable of making their own choices, they say. And, uh, you know, I guess as scholars, they say, you know, this means media studies and education is the critical thing. You know, two scholars might just say that. But in the end, did they kind of see what the problem was? You can't control what the Internet has created. And in the end, it does come down to individuals, no matter how you structure you know, the powers of your office or the self-regulatory um, uh, impulses of, of the broadcasters, however that's done, comes down to people. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? But I'd say in the late 90s, people were still in thrall of a utopian view of the internet and um, the, the, the flowering of its potential to set um, individuals free um and um you know that that it was going to be be a wild untamed but ultimately um human and potentially beautiful flowering of human potential um fast forward to 2022 actually the internet is primarily owned by a few very small very huge global conglomerates that are operating it for um for profit through a process whereby they are profiling and packaging users and selling them to advertisers. So it's a very, very different world that we're in now from um, from that that was being looked forward to in the late 90s. And I think we've got to adjust our approach accordingly. That was David Shanks, who's just stepped down as the chief censor after five years in the job at a time when the government is reviewing how media content of all kinds should be regulated to better protect us from harm. And finally, this weekend on Media Watch, there was big news for small screen sci-fi fans with a sense of history last Monday when the BBC broke new ground with its pick for the next Doctor Who, as TVNZ Simon Dello told One News viewers. 
And now the Dimension Hopping Time Lords going through a history-making change. The Dalek-busting baton is being passed from the first woman to play the role to a gay Scottish actor whose family fled the Rwandan genocide. But it turns out that was only half right, as Hayden Donnell told Karen Hay on The Lately Show last Wednesday in this week's Midweek Media Watch. Also, they talked about a journalist making a change in policy on climate change and an article echoing homeowners' fears of new houses, alongside one lifting the lid on the damp reality of renting rotten old ones. And there was more. If you missed it, Midweek Media Watch is on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, or it's in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.